Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20? Acts chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 17 through 38. So a little bit of a long section, so let's try and focus. We can make it through this. Acts 20, 17 through 38, which says this. Now, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to uh, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Paul talks about, in this passage, being, cons being constrained or bound by the Holy Spirit in verse 22. But when he talks about this binding constraint to his calling in verse 24, he views it as better than life. So to Paul, being constrained is not negative. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, when, when Paul says, uh, he says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
So to Paul, the Spirit brings constraint and freedom. To Paul, constraint in the Spirit is a liberating constraint. It's true freedom. We generally think of freedom in in terms of from, but Paul shows us a different kind of freedom, freedom to and freedom for. The best example of this is a love relationship, whether it's friends, family, church, or a romantic relationship. All healthy love relationships involve this mutual, unselfish service and a sacrificing of some level of independence for the sake of the relationship. But human beings, see, we are most free and alive in relationships of love. Whatever that relationship is. I think of my relationship with Audrey as an amazing freedom. But it's not as much freedom from any constraints as it is a freedom to a great love. In fact, it brings its own constraints upon us. More, in fact, uh, but they are liberating constraints. They free us to love one another better and longer and more deeply. I mean, I had a lot of one kind of freedom when I was single. Freedom from duties of cleanliness and responsibility and being as messy as I wished and watching as much television as I desired. I had alone time and I didn't have to consult anyone else when I made various decisions about my life. And all of that freedom is gone. Marriage has been sacrificed in that way. But to experience the joy and freedom of love, you must give up your personal autonomy. My limited independence leads to greater intimacy. I'm more free than I've ever been. And we both make each other better and change each other The very nature of our commitment to one another moves us to to give of ourselves greatly. And there truly is great blessedness in that. I experience that, that truth that, that Paul quotes Jesus, that it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Pastor Tim Keller says in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. He gives an example of a fish which absorbs oxygen from water rather than from air, so it's only really free if it's restricted and limited to water. So, if we put it in the grass, it doesn't become more free. Its freedom to move and even live is not enhanced, but destroyed. You see? So, for a fish, water is a liberating restriction. Which, he says, are those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world and produce greater power and scope for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. The philosopher James K.A. Smith calls finding the right kind of boundaries and obligations the rebar of identity. And I love that image, like rebar and concrete constraint forms the structure holding you together, giving you a center, giving you a purpose. He says this, if freedom is going to be more than mere freedom from, if true freedom is the power of freedom for, then I have to trade autonomy, meaning self-rule, I have to trade autonomy for a different kind of dependence. The Apostle Paul is constrained, he says in this passage. He's compelled by the Spirit. He is constrained to his particular calling. Or to put it in another way, He's constrained by his love for God and his love 
for others. But to him, these restraints are liberating restraints. They are the rebar of his identity. They shape his life in such a way that it brings him deeper joy and fulfillment. He doesn't have freedom in the way we generally talk about freedom as this like unfettered, unobligated self-actualization and self-indulgence. But as many a depressed, famous person and uh, wrecked alcoholic can tell you, that kind of freedom can be a lot more like bondage. Paul has true freedom. Freedom to and freedom for, rather than just freedom from things. He has the, uh, he is free to a beautiful relationship and free for a grand purpose. And the counterintuitive truth is that freedom comes through constraint. Being tied to the will of one greater than ourselves. God is the one who liberates us when we are bound to him. And then with that freedom, that freedom to and for, comes much more significant freedoms from, like the freedom from the tyranny of people's perceptions and freedom from the fear of hardships and unknowns and freedom from greed and selfishness and freedom from pride and selfishness and entitlement and freedom, most importantly, from wasting your life. Of course, these are negative ways of stating it, but I'd much rather look at positive, what this freedom for and to looks like positively in Paul's life, how being bound by the Spirit of God and his calling forms Paul into a compassionate and courageous and generous and joyful human being. And, and Christ, likewise, is calling each one of us into such a loving relationship with him that makes us into truer human beings that are being changed from the inside out to be more like him. And so I want to look at how being bound to Christ and to the will of God by the Spirit of God shaped Paul's heart and life, in particular in three virtues. I know I didn't give you an outline, but if I did, it probably would have been these three virtues. Humility, courage, and generosity. Humility, courage, and generosity. But we have to begin by seeing that all three of these virtues, they are driven and united by love. Love for God, and love for others. Paul talks about being compelled by the Spirit, but he also talks about being compelled by love. He says so in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says, the love of Christ controls us because, and he says, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ constrains. Once you come to terms with how Christ gave himself for you, you'll lose your fear of giving up your freedom. And that's the first step on the path toward finding true freedom in him. Which Paul says looks like no longer living for yourself and the, the claustrophobic confines of your own desires and needs and wants and feelings but instead living for him who for your sake died and was raised which opens you up and enlarges your soul giving you elevating your joy giving you freedom to really live and really love and we see in Paul's life it's living for Christ and loving Christ it looked a lot like loving Christ's people he genuinely and deeply loved this church and cared for them 
And they also loved him. I mean, the end of this chapter, it's such a a tender and moving moment, isn't it? I mean, Paul leaves them and says they won't see him again. And so they embrace him and they kiss him and they pray together and there's much weeping as they say goodbye. There was this powerful bond and connection and affection. Paul had genuine care and compassion. He loved them deeply. And that love, like all true love, was both affection and commitment. It involved the the emotions and the will. We see how emotional and affectionate it was right there, right? But, But it was more than that. It was also a choice. It was a commitment. Paul's love manifested itself in how he acted and cared for these people. He wept with them and rejoiced with them. He prayed for them and taught them. With tears, he warned them day and night and sought to protect them. He endured hardships to serve them. In fact, the whole point of this passage is he's gathering together these men who are the shepherds, the leaders of this flock, and he's he's calling them to continue his work of loving and caring for these people. He says in verse 21, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. See, see, that last phrase, it's key. He sees these people as incredibly valuable because they were obtained with Jesus' own blood. And he wants to make sure these men treat them that way and care for them like he did. And he says that the way he did that was with humility and with service. Verse 19, he begins his talk by saying, You guys know how the whole time I was with you, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Humility marked Paul's ministry and life. Humility is freedom from pride and from selfishness. You may not think of pride as something that you need freedom from, but it is a a burden. It is a, a, a weight, a heavy one. And I mean, pride doesn't always feel like arrogant superiority. I mean, sometimes... it's manifested that way, but it also can feel like low self-esteem because what often fuels low self-esteem is a desire to be great that's not being met or a desire to be seen as great that's not being met. And our sense of inadequacy often feels like low self-image, but actually it's mostly due to thinking of myself more highly than I ought and wanting others to admire me more than I deserve. And that's a des- and like desire to be seen as great in some way is what's driving that. And, and when we have that desire, that's when we feel shamed and exposed by our inadequacies and our limitations and our weaknesses and our sins, which makes living with them and fighting them much more burdensome than it should be. Pride lays a weight on us making the peace of contentment and the joy of service and the freedom of self-forgetfulness nearly impossible. But Jesus shows us the way to freedom from that bondage. And it comes through servanthood. He says this. One time whenever all of his disciples were uh, arguing about who was greatest, he gathered them together and he said this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you 
must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's so powerful. It's, such a, it's a beautiful paradox that liberation comes through servitude. Because pride places heavy burdens on our shoulders that we can't bear, enslaving us to pursuits of reputation and admiration and success and beauty and competency at whatever we're doing. And when we fail, pride tempts us to lie and to hide and to feel shame. But when we succeed, it's even worse because it tempts us to put those same burdens on others and lord it over them. So Jesus calls us to give him that heavy yoke and take his light yoke. He opposes the proud, he says, but I hope you can see now that that's a mercy. He mercifully opposes the proud and he says that he gives grace to the humble. The yoke that he gives us of faith and love is held and carried by his own grace. Paul teaches that Biblical humility, though, it's much more than just not being a certain way or doing certain things. Paul teaches us how to think of humility in a positive way in, one, in my favorite chapter of the Bible, Philippians 2. And he says the negative, he says that negative first. He says, don't do, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, nothing. But then here comes the positive. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what it means to be humble according to Scripture, to count others more significant than yourself and to look to the interests of others. You may have uh, heard, uh, there's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis about humility. He says, true humility is not thinking of yourself less, it's thinking less of yourself. And I think that's that's. That's true, and it's going in the right direction, but I think we can build upon it based on this Philippians 2 passage because if we're thinking less of ourselves, those thoughts need to go somewhere else. So I think that Paul teaches us that biblical humility means thinking more of others and thinking of others more. Let me say that again. Biblical humility is thinking more of others and thinking of others more. Thinking of more of others is when Paul says, count others more significant than yourself. Think more of them. And then think, think of others more. That's when he says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's freedom from selfishness. And he goes on to say that this humility is the very heart of Jesus himself, who didn't count equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself, becoming a man and a servant and dying a criminal's death on a cross. And through that condescension, he was exalted, Paul says. Just like Jesus taught us, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it's that path of being a servant and humility that Jesus calls us to. And Paul shows us that he embraced that liberating path of serving others and putting love into action, which frees us from the tyranny of self-absorbed pride. 
and enables us to experience the truth that Paul ends this talk with, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But humility, it's not the opposite of strength and courage. Uh, Paul exercised loving and humble courage as he lived out his calling and his commitment to Jesus. He, it made him courageous. He was freed from being ruled by fear. And I see two kinds of courage here. One is freedom from the fear of conflict and the tyranny of people's perceptions. And the other is freedom from fear of suffering and an uncertain future. So we see that first kind of courage when he talks about how he didn't shrink back. I love that language. Twice in this message he says he didn't shrink from speaking the truth. In verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And in verse 27 he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I love that. Because using that phrase, I think, is acknowledging something that we all feel, that temptation to shrink from declaring truth. And, and he's acknowledging that that temptation from declaring the truth is real, even for the great apostle, Paul. Uh, but he didn't give in to it. He, it. It takes courage. It takes courage to speak the truth of Jesus, because much of what Jesus is about and much of what Jesus teaches, it, it's, it's pretty different from the way people tend to think on their own and the way they live. It's counterintuitive, you see. I mean, just like what we just talked about, gaining freedom through servanthood. And he gives this example of this kind of counterintuitive teaching of Jesus when he talks at, at the end when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, even, that's not how most people think or live. I mean, even if they think it sounds kind of nice and quaint, that's, they don't really apply that to their lives. That's not really how they live. And to really apply that in a consistent way would step on some toes. And Paul wasn't afraid to step on toes. He wasn't afraid of confrontation. At least he didn't let that fear rule him. He talks about how he admonished people day and night with tears. Paul's genuine and deep love for God gave, and, and, and for people, it gave him courage. It gave him courage to confront and to challenge people. And we're often told that love means accepting other people just as they are without asking them to change. But biblical love is not solidarity in sin. Love doesn't sit idly by while the beloved destroys themselves. True love is a commitment to the other's best interests and ultimate good, even if it's uncomfortable or painful. We need to balance truth and love. Compassion does not mean we give up our convictions. And on the other side, holding firm to truth does not mean that we live without love and kindness. Uh, sadly, though, people often do go too far in one direction or the other. I've talked with several people in my life who are kind of hanging out around the fringe of Christianity who don't want to become too Christian because the people that they see as too Christian are those who are overbearing and self-righteous and opinionated and insensitive and harsh. But if you really think about it, those people are that way not because they're too Christian, but because they're not Christian enough. They have courage without humility. 
They are zealous about a moral code, but they're not zealous about forgiveness and love and empathy and kindness the way Jesus himself was. They imitate Paul's admonition, but not his tears. We need to learn from Jesus, who when they brought him a woman caught in adultery to be stoned, Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone at her, leaving them all to walk away. But he also called her to stop sinning, looking at her and saying, go and from now on sin no more. Jesus himself held that balance of truth and love. And Paul had this kind of courage and love. And he also had courage in the face of suffering and uncertainty about the future. In verse 22, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained in the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So many people, many of us are are burdened by anxieties about the future. Minds, our minds are frequently dominated by what might go wrong tomorrow that might make us miserable. But Paul, he, he demonstrates this beautiful freedom of faith and contentment with uncertainty about the future. We are always on the edge of the unknown. That's what faith is for. That's why God calls us to trust him. Because we cannot know what is next. But we can be sure that he does. And we don't need to know because we know something better. That he will be with us and for us. Yesterday, an author named Matt Smethurst shared an excerpt from an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote on living in an atomic age. Back when atomic bombs were new and everybody was anxious about them. And Smethurst, he suggested reading this essay from Lewis, but replacing atomic bomb with coronavirus. And it's not a perfect one-to-one comparison, but it still contains wise words to an anxious time, I believe. If you do that, it reads like this. It's perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because there's been added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristles with such chances and in which death itself is not a chance at all, but a certainty. The first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by the coronavirus, let that virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about viruses. They may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. This world is a broken and dangerous and risky place, and we will always be anxious about it if our eyes are set down here. What liberates us is living for a purpose much bigger than the the padding and the preservation of our own life. In verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
One of my favorite authors and preachers, John Piper, summarizes this text by saying, it is better to lose your life than to waste it. That's such a powerful statement. I love it. I mean, when Paul says, I do not count my life of any value except for this one thing, and he's saying, isn't he saying by that it's better to be unfaithful? I mean, to better, better to be faithful to my calling and to die rather than be unfaithful and to live? Better to lose my life than to waste it. And Paul really believed Psalm 63, which says to God, your steadfast love is better than life. He believed that, and I pray we believe that too. The goal is not to stay alive and stay comfortable. The goal is to stay on course for the glory of God because it goes even further than uncertainty for Paul. I mean, the one thing that Paul does know is that suffering awaits him. Verse 23 says, The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. See, Paul was not immune to suffering because he followed Jesus. And he wasn't immune to the unpleasantness of the suffering he faced either. He says that he ministered with tears because of the persecutions he faced. But he didn't let fear of it rule his life. And he had a perspective and a purpose that was big enough to endure hardship. In fact, Paul viewed suffering as an opportunity, an opportunity to display the truth of the crucified and suffering Savior. He knew that enduring suffering for the sake of other people was a way to help them embrace the Savior who suffered for them on a cross. And this path, it's not just for the Apostle Paul. It's common to Christians. I mean, remember back in Acts 14, whenever he told the church through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And later, when he writes to his apprentice Timothy, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, I was thinking about this again recently when I was re-listening to some old episodes of one of my favorite podcasts. And, and they were doing this show about the funny and interesting conclusions that kids draw from the information they're presented with. And this one dad told this story of his daughter who was four years old at the time. And she was asking what Christmas is about for the first time. And the dad wasn't really a Christian, but he had gone to church as a kid, so he knew the basics. And he was explaining to her that this was celebrating the, the birth of Jesus. And she wanted to know more about that. So they went out and they bought a kid's Bible and they had these readings at night and she loved them. She wanted to know all about Jesus. And so they read a lot about his birth and his teachings. And she, she constantly was asking, what's that, what's that saying again? And he would say, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And she kept having him repeat that. And then one day they were driving past this big church that must have been Catholic because there was this enormous crucifix out in front of it where uh, Jesus was hanging on the cross there. And she said, who's that? And uh, he realized he never told her that part of the story. And so he said, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you the ending. That's Jesus. And his message that he had was so radical and so unnerving to the prevailing authorities at the time that they had to kill him. They came to the conclusion that he would have to die. His message was just too troublesome. So she takes that in. And then about a month later, uh, 
Martin Luther King Day rolls around. And she's asking what that holiday is about. And who is Martin Luther King? And uh, she asks who Martin Luther King was. And the dad says, well, he was a preacher. And she looks up and she goes, for Jesus? And he goes, yeah, yeah, he was for Jesus. Uh, but uh, there was another thing that he was really famous for. And that's that he had a message. And she said, what was his message? And he said that you should treat everybody the same no matter what they look like. And uh, she thought about that for a minute. And she looks at him and she says, well, that's what Jesus said. And the dad goes, yeah, I guess it kind of is. I, you know, I never thought of it that way. But yeah, this sort of is like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, isn't it? And she thought about that for a minute. And she looks at him again and she says, did they kill him too? And if she heard about Paul, she'd be right to ask the same question. But how did Paul think about that? He says from his jail cell in Philippians 1, It is my eager expectation and hope that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's whole life from when he turned to Jesus was lived for Jesus and his death would be for Jesus. Many of us will die for nothing, simply petering out. But Paul spent his life. He burned for Jesus like a bonfire. Like when he was consumed in that burning he could have peace, knowing that that is what he was made for. If he's all burned up, he simply provided the warmth and the heat that God had appointed for him. A life lived like this, a life lived like Paul's life and the life of Jesus, which Paul modeled his life after, it's a generous life. It's being burned up and spending your life for others and for God. It's the trajectory of generosity. Paul was generous with his whole life. He, he generously gave his time, his energy, his resources to others for the glory of God. And he was, he was set free from envy and from greed. He says in verse 33 through 35, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He demonstrated generosity contributing money and resources to the ministry of the church through his hard work. And he didn't live enslaved to envy, looking at people who had more and seeking the same. Instead, he looked at the people who had less and sought their good. And he not only lived generously himself, but he encouraged others to live generously because he truly believed that that would be their greatest good, that if they weren't living that way, they were missing out. He truly believed that that was the path to true and great blessedness, being set free from holding on and hoarding as though God is going to hold out on us. Rather, freedom 
is experiencing the amazing and surprising truth that it is more blessed to give than to receive. He called people to really trust God and believe Jesus when he said these things. Jesus calls us to do the same. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus' abundant grace, it forms the starting point from which we love others generously. And Jesus teaches us that generosity is much more than just money. But, but Paul, Paul, when he followed after Jesus, giving his whole life to others for the sake of Christ, we see that in this, in this verse, whenever in verse 20 he says, he taught them in public and from house to house. In verse 31, he admonished them night and day without ceasing. In verse 21, he taught both Jews and Greeks. So if you take all that together, he engaged people with the gospel everywhere, every time, with everybody. He was utterly committed to this. There's a book I love called Death by Living. Death by Living. And the subtitle is Life is Meant to be Spent. And I love books with good titles. It's so good. Since death is inevitable and we all are headed to the grave one day, he poetically says living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. And he prays, may I live hard to the dregs, and may my living be grace to those behind me. And I love that prayer. And he talks about, he references how Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they fought well and all the way to the end and reached their deaths by living for others. And he says, and so will we. How fast can we run? How deeply can we laugh? Can we ever give more than we receive? How much gratitude can we show? How many of the least of these can we touch along the way? How many seeds will we get into the ground before we ourselves are planted? When we spend our lives for Jesus, we will not waste our lives. We will gain true life. When we are ruled by a person and a power greater than our own selves, we will gain true freedom. Submit to that powerful, liberating person today, this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit to master our hearts. Constrain us to your will and make us increase and abound in love so that we will be humble and courageous and generous and, and experience freedom from pride and, and fear and envy. But more importantly, experience freedom to a relationship with you and freedom for your glorious purposes for our lives. We pray this in and through the name of the most humble and the most courageous and the most generous one of all, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.